Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. I'm your host, Tristan Johnson. I am co-hosted today by Tanya Nagpal. Hello. Back from her wonderful, uh, busy semester, back to join the show. I'm really excited. Yes, I'm very excited. And I'm super excited because we have our first new department we have our first women's studies guest on our show today. I want a really warm welcome for all of you out in the internet from Melanie Stone. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, um, without without putting it to fine point, what is uh what is it that you do? What is it, what do you research? What is your research? Yes. <laughs> well, well, um, I couldn't think of a more smooth way to put it and it's just getting less smooth the longer I do this. I'll try, I'll try. So Melanie, tell us a little bit about your research. Okay, well my research looks at um, disability and how disability is constructed, uh, particularly for mothers with disabilities who are trying to access employment and employment services. All right, so is this in a particular locale? Is it here or is it like in general? Right now, I'm looking at uh, Canada as a whole, um, sort of particularly interested in those locations that have accessibility policies. So um, both Ontario and Saskatchewan um, have a accessibility policy. And so I'm looking at whether or not that ac- accessibility policy has made any impact whatsoever in women's experiences of work as mothers with disabilities. And how do you do this? So what's the experimental design to answer this question? What I'm doing is a photo voice methodology. And so this is sort of a participatory action research methodology where I give women with disabilities cameras. They go out into the community and they are able to take photos of whatever they want to share with me in terms of barriers that they face as as sort of moms with disabilities, uh, the joys that they face, anything that they want to sit down and talk to me about. So that's the methodology that I've chosen for this uh, particular uh, project because a lot of times when we look at disability-related work, uh, work, we look at sort of deficit-based disability. So they're positioning as what is the problem that this person is experiencing because of their, their body or uh, because of their disability as an individual thing. I'm looking at more of a social construct of disability. So I'm interested in sort of how we disable people with, um, with bad policy, with um, inaccessible designs, um, sort of with everyday barriers that they face and how we might be able to overcome them. And I feel that when you put a camera in someone's hands, uh, oftentimes they know their story best. They know what those barriers look like. And oftentimes they're very small things uh, that cause a huge, huge barrier. You know, I'm thinking of like sort of curb cuts or an elevator that constantly breaks down. These aren't difficult things to fix. They're just things we haven't had illuminated well. So this is part of my project is picking this photo voice methodology. It's really cool. Yeah. That is the coolest experimentation method I've ever heard. Yeah. And, um, because they're so, because I, I, I do like humanities research as well. Mm. And it's hard to get people's own voices in the way that they like, let them have some control. I mean, you could do unstructured interviews, but then there's, you know, that can even have its own thing. But like the, the camera idea, that's amazing. Well, it's it's a, a really neat project. It was sort of designed by Caroline Wang, um, who's a social science researcher. And she's really been able to sort of highlight these inequities um, that you wouldn't necessarily find. Even, you know, you're a well-intentioned researcher. I know that there's, um, you know, issues out there with accessibility. I worked in, in social services for many years. I could probably sit down and make a list. But that list doesn't matter when it doesn't impact women's lives. And so they know their lives best. They know their own joys. They know their own, um, you know, 
experiences um, and they can highlight best what we should do to fix the problem. And so it's really about trying to be participatory. I think a lot of social scientists, we all aim to be sort of, you know, anti-hierarchical and feminist in our research design. I think this hopefully um, will get me there a little faster in terms of, you know, taking myself out of the picture and letting the picture sort of follow what they want to see. So do you also talk to the participants about their photos? That's right. So as soon as they've finished with their uh, photography, um, they choose which photos they'd like to share with me. Um, and those photos uh, can really be of anything. You know, it's it's not necessarily going to be um, something that I would say, hey, you know what, go take a picture of that big curb cut that, that isn't done well or that elevator that's broken down. Um, it's going to be things that maybe I have never noticed before. Um, and they're going to walk me through it and why it's a problem or they're going to, you know, showcase sort of their particular joy of like what happened and on a particular day and why they captured a moment and if there could be more moments like this. So I think um, I'm just looking forward to seeing what uh, women, you know, present to me as part of this uh, project. And I'm really interested in seeing what they capture because I have an idea of what it might be, but I have no idea yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I do have to find like what kind of, what kind of interesting, like, uh, I imagine there's a lot of like typical thing, like you said, like an elevator breaking down. Is there any is there any interesting surprise, especially on the uh, the motherhood angle? Uh, yeah. So one of the things that always caught me by surprise is, um, I mean, it's traditionally known that women do a lot more emotional caregiving. So we do a lot more of the sort of running kids back and forth to school. We do a lot of the sort of getting the birthday cards and the birthday gifts and all this. And I made the unfortunate assumption of thinking that if if you were a mother with a disability, that surely you do a little bit less of that just because you're receiving your own care. Um, you know, perhaps you're, you're struggling with, with a lot of different schedules and that's not been the case. It, it really doesn't change the number of hours in a day um, that women devote to emotional caregiving um, is roughly 8.7. And for moms with disabilities, it's roughly 8.6. So it's really not, yeah, not any right. different. Um, so that's sort of, you know, originally what I looked at and, and assumed wrongly that people were doing less of this. And in fact, that's not the case. Where I'm seeing amazing differences is between men and women and their experiences of, say, daycare. And so mothers with disabilities who may access paratransit, for example, have to book paratransit three days in advance. So you need to know you know, where you're going to be in three days and what your child wants to do in three days. Um, so say they have to go to daycare. Then you have to book that appointment early enough to get there. Then you have to stay at least half an hour at that location because paratransit needs a gap between drop-off and pickup. Uh, then you need to coordinate that pickup time again at the end of the day. And so a lot of times women who use paratransit are spending upwards of four hours a day on a bus just to get their child back and forth to, ca to care. Uh, and so that's one huge um, gap in resources for moms with disabilities. We aren't seeing that necessarily with fathers because that's that sort of caregiving role and sort of running kids back and forth to daycare still falls on moms um, even when they have a disability. And it's almost to the point where you could make a, uh, you could almost make a number. Mm -hmm. Like you could say like, uh, like we are, we have also, you have a number of like emotional caregiving with like number of hours from that number of hours. Maybe you could also show like the, the effect of disability on that. Like you can almost, I don't know uh, if you did comparative numbers. You could like see exactly. Uh, there's some, there's, it's just it's it's really fascinating. You can you can uh, you can put numbers on this like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if you look at the day in a life of a mom who is experiencing disability, 
Um, it's a much longer day. Um, it's a lot more to plan. Oftentimes she's planning her own care. So trying to coordinate her own personal support care when she's going to get some maybe assistance with, um, you know, cooking, or maybe she's going to get some assistance with physical care. Um, she's doing that alongside her own children, trying to get them back and forth, navigating paratransit. There's only so many hours in a day. Um, and so we're, that's a big factor in why women are experiencing long-term unemployment and unemployment because they just can't get the supports in place they need. And a lot of these things have really easy fixes, but we haven't looked at disability in terms of family. We've looked at disability as an individual problem. We haven't looked at how it impacts families, communities, societies, um, and how our society creates these disabling conditions. So that's part of what I'm hoping to do with my research. I can definitely see this like, really, now you can disagree with me on this, I, I'd be interested, you can see this like, interesting Venn diagram of like the different aspects of late capitalism like mm -hmm. you have the the lack of support for people who are not of like profit viability but you also have like the intersection of like uh, individualizing people's uh, health needs or people's needs which is of course another like big like neoliberal type thing but uh, it, it's just it, it, they get this like they fall into this almost like abyss because of this uh, because of the way that really the way the economics works in the world and I, I, that's that's really tragic it is it is tragic and I, I just think about simple examples right so I think about the way that if you are employed for example it is your responsibility to seek out accommodation as an individual and you have to go and take a form to your doctor to say for example that you need an elevator at work or you need a, a lamp because you know overhead lighting is affecting your eyesight or but why should you have to prove it's your deficit and not the employer like why would a doctor need to sign off on there being three steps to your employment that you know it's all about individualizing disability we don't collect the right information and if we were to turn that around and say what would make our workplace more accessible and we kept that data on file and we logged those you know issues I think we would see a huge change in what we accommodate and what we don't accommodate. And the problem is we we still blame the individual for having a disability. We don't take ownership um, of creating a lot of these disabling conditions. And so it's become a real difficulty trying to get people to break out of this sort of neoliberal ideology of, you know, fix yourself, bootstraps, you know, get everything you need in place and move on. And then to actually have somebody sit down and say, you know, why don't we, why don't we just log all of our our injustices as an employer and then you know start checking them off and start saying okay we've taken care of the stairs now we're going to take care of the lighting now we're going to make sure we have environmental sensitivities in place you know we make sure we have you know adequate air supply why don't we sort of take charge in that way and i think um part of that is because we just haven't learned that we have a responsibility to do that that's amazing to hear and it really makes me think about the fact that um because we don't think the way that you're mentioning right now, that's where the stigma with disability comes up, where people don't share the disabilities that they might be experiencing and they they think that it's better to just sort of hide it and that I'm sure increases the unemployment rate as well. And then again, we're blaming the individual rather than the employment system or the employer itself. So do you hope to kind of this research then 
inform policymaking or encourage uh, more appropriate policymaking? I really do. Um, I've been one of the people who have been sort of woefully unimpressed by our accessibility legislation. I think, A, it doesn't have any teeth, and B, it calls for really passive policy. So um, I'll give you an example. I used transportation before, but one of the things that the AODA did was call for equal hours between conventional transit and paratransit. So conventional transit is transit you can hop on, it runs around the city. Paratransit runs parallel, often offers door-to-door or close uh, services for people with disabilities. That sounds great until you think about what an employer um, of conventional transit is going to do with that legislation. And of course, here in London, we saw this happen when it first came out. They just cut their conventional service hours. Equality, right? So that's great. We're all equal. But the problem is then we're further demonizing people with disabilities because now people are angry. They can't work their shift jobs. They have, you know, they don't have the same hours that they once did because now everything has to be equal. So again, we're putting that onus on people with disabilities. The other problem with the legislation is that it it's really good at intentions. Uh, so it's really trying to get to the bottom of, you know, you have to do a report every year as a business saying that you're intending to be, you know, accessible, that you've done this training, and but it doesn't actually require you to do those things because it doesn't have anywhere to, um, you know, there's no 1-800 number, for example, to report, you know, indiscretions at your workplace or inaccessibility. There's no fines, there's no teeth, there's no guards of this legislation. Um, And part of that is because it was never meant to do what it intended to do, which was make the province accessible. It was intended to make it look like we intended to be accessible. Mm -hmm. So I think by creating policy from the ground up. So taking women's experiences, mothers with disabilities, if we're looking at sort of vulnerable folks, uh, people who have been vulnerabilized um, by society, and we look at their photos and we say, oh my gosh, that's such a simple fix, but geez, it has real um, you know, ramifications up the pipe. Well, maybe we can make better and more responsive policy. Um, and policy with teeth, right? Right. So you also said in the beginning that you, they also document things that bring them joy. So do you want to share maybe on a positive note, what are some of the, some of the things that you've seen um, in terms of accessibilities that they shared as bringing joyful moments? Um, well, I haven't had too much um, in terms of feedback yet because I'm still at the early stages of my research. But I will say that for the moms that I know, because I worked in the area for a long time, a lot of those joys come um, in unexpected moments. So when the school makes accommodations so that they can come and see the recital or, um, you know, that their their child learned something um almost because of their disability, because they've had, you know, they've had to learn, their kids are just, you know, a little more autonomous. Uh, They have better uh, concepts of danger, for example. And I I use a a friend of mine's example. Her uh, one-year-old knew she couldn't save her, right? So she wasn't as willing to sort of climb to the top of the telephone pole as other because she was very aware really early that mom couldn't catch her um, and therefore became very physically aware in a way that she probably wouldn't had you know a friend of mine not had uh, had a disability and been uh, using a wheelchair to get around and so there are these moments where you're you know incredibly proud of your child for sort of accomplishing something but you're also very aware of like how your disability is sort of um, setting them up for a more empathetic understanding of people mm-hmm. right a more responsive um, you know response to other people's needs, to thinking beyond themselves. And right. so there's a lot of those stories that go, go hand in hand with parenting with disability. That's great. I really, like, I really appreciate the fact that you're including, you know, images of what needs to be addressed, but also showing that when these issues are addressed, look at the great positivity we gain from that. Um, so I think that in itself is 
extremely powerful because we sort of always see the problem. Here's the problem. Address it. And you're also showing if you address it, this is what you'll sort of achieve. That's right. And even things like accessible playgrounds, it's really not hard to have an accessible playground. Um, you know, we have all these structures for safe play, and uh, but we never think about how a mom or a father or anyone is going to get to the top of a slide to help their child mm. down if they have a wheelchair, for example, or if they're using a cane or if they're using something, you know. Um, but, but we do see across the province and across Canada um, and even in the U.S. Uh, some amazing accessible playgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so these types of things are really great great um, just to look at what is possible. And when you can see what is possible, you start to see more of an impact in the community. Wow. So, so is there any work on like, because one of the known things about uh, the, the photo journaling is that you could get a lot of the, I, I, my mind goes to like, when people don't understand what microaggressions were, mm-hmm. then uh, what happened was there was a really popular, I believe it was like something like Snapchat, something like, you know, with the short video format, where this guy was basically just like, uh, it was a black man going to uh, convenience stores and basically just like sneaking a camera on the people who, on the store owners following him and being like, look, still not stealing stuff. But um, it's kind of like that world, that, that view into a perspective that you can't by like, you know, by biological reality can't see and kind of get a window into that because like a, one of the aspects of privilege is that people don't really, uh, people don't notice when uh, they're getting advantages that others aren't. And I think that's really cool. I hope that that's going to be part of it. I mean, it's it's sad to me that we need to sort of not believe people at their word, but we need to actually see it. Um, and I think part of my challenge as a researcher is to be very careful about how I use those images, um, both with permission, but also with good intention, because it can be very easy to sort of load your thesis with like really, you know, you know kind of photos of really disastrous things. But I think, I think uh, part of part of my job as a researcher is to make sure that the nuanced photos are as clearly marked. So when it it could be very small microaggression, right? It could be a picture of a bus driving by, which we know happens all the time uh, to people who have uh, disabilities. They wait, the bus just flies by, nobody stops and says, hey, you know what, the next one is coming. I just don't have room for you. They just ignore. And of course, no one believes you. Like, oh, no, no, he would never do that. He's a good bus driver. Um, but those are the moments I'm hoping to capture. It's always like, yes, this happens. It happens every day. And if it happens to this person out in Saskatchewan or this person in BC, then it's happening across the country. Wow, it's amazing. So do you have any thoughts of like next steps from this? Like, What's the sequel to your research? Oh, my goodness. I would have to ask the participants, but what, what do you think you know, can possibly be. Um, you know, I'm going to probably ask them a few key questions of like, if you could change anything, if, if, if you had a magic wand, what would it be? And see if some of those magic wand items could actually be be advocated for. I mean, I think uh, part of the problem is that a lot of people have to do a lot of work. When you have a disability, you're a constant self-advocate. Um, you have to constantly be seeking accommodations. You have to constantly worry about whether you're taking your child somewhere that's accessible, are you going to be able to get into the movies? Are you not going to be able to get into the movies? Are you going to be able to get to the daycare? Um, and so they become sort of these radical self-advocates all the time. Um, and so I think in some ways they're best positioned to let me know what they think is the possibility. So That was amazing to hear. Yeah, to go a little bit more specific, uh, do you see a lot of stuff with like uh, service dogs? Because I know that they're like the new uh, thing that everyone's talking about. Does that come up? Uh, service dogs are, are uh, a huge part of the research, and I find um, really fascinating, weird issues with service dogs that people just don't understand what they're for. 
Um, and I think uh, as we're seeing a broadening of what service dogs can do, uh, certainly we're seeing, uh, you know, service dogs for folks uh, living with autism, uh, seizure uh, concerns, um, uh, sight, um, low vision, no vision, that type of thing. But we're also just seeing broadening of a sort of therapy dogs. Um, and so part of part of this project, but also part of a lot of projects will be about educating people what those dogs are there because there's still this undercurrent of suspicion around people with disabilities. Like, do you really need that? Does it really need to come in the grocery store? Well, yes, it does, right? Because your grocery store is not accessible. So that's mm. why, right? Wow. Uh, and if anybody wanted to look up what you were doing, do you have a presence on the interweb somewhere? If somebody wanted to see uh, what you're up to? I, I will be. Um, so my project is called Making Her Life Work. Uh, representing disability motherhood uh, and employment engagement using photo voice and it's actually um, going to be a website very shortly uh, but if people are interested in knowing more there's also a lot of information about disability motherhood and employment on um, the disabled women's uh, network of canada dawn so it's a really great resource as well so this episode will come out in about a month after we record will it be great. up by then absolutely awesome all, all right. right check it out Melissa, thank you so much for thank coming. you, thank you. that's amazing very inspirational. We'll see you guys next week. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.